Folks, no worries if you're continuing to get coffee. We'll get started. Thank you. Great. There, that's all. It's green. It's ready. Okay. This is small font, I know, but it's made up for the, by the fact that you have a handout in your hand. So, my name is Matt Milliner. I know most of you. There are more and more people here at All Souls that I don't know. And I am the catechist, which means that I organize catechesis. I organize the adult education. And what I wanted to do today was to give a sense of where we've been, where we are, and where we're going, a little bit of that. And I wanted to create a document that could sort of encapsulate and serve this stellar, see what's happening with the handouts always happens. People are reading it. When I, they always tell you, don't give it out while you're, while you're talking. See, it's already happened. I see George back there. He's reading it. He's going to not pick. Okay. So this, and this is what I've tried to do. There's too much that I have to say to fit into this session, but nevertheless, because I, I missed my session in the fall, so I tried to squeeze it in. But I hope that this will serve the stellar preaching and teaching that I have been hearing. I've been on sabbatical last semester, so I've been in and out. But my goodness, when I get here, what I've been hearing, the little refrains in the homilies, the little moments in catechesis that I say, oh, there's something there. That's it. That's what we're doing at All Souls. That's what I've tried to encapsulate here. Denise, my wife, called it my Unabomber, Unabomber Manifesto because it was way too long. And so I, I was a little taken aback by that, so I compressed it. It's much shorter than it once was. So, Nevertheless, I hope this is of help to you. Let's begin with prayer. Father, thank you for this strange place that you have risen up along the marsh, along the prairie path, a place where many of us have found our spiritual home. There are many homeless. We are not among them, thanks to this home that you have given us and the gifts that you have brought to this place. We pray that this session would serve what you are doing here, that it would honor what your Holy Spirit is up to, and we pray that you would be with us in this season of epiphany where your light is cast to all the nations and that you'd be with us in this time right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so it's a strange place that we're at and getting your mind around it takes a while. And you, we might never quite get our minds around it. And our name really does do a lot of that conceptual work. What you've got in that first paragraph on your handout is the description just taken from our website. It's really weird. We're a church that's kind of into N.T. Wright, but we have a name he would probably hate that emphasizes the souls. He wants to say, well, no, we're, we're, we're bodies, most, but nevertheless, we say, okay, we go with it. Um, it's a Catholic holiday. All Souls was that time after All Saints Day. Well, what about the rest of us? And so... The Abbey of Cluny, way back in the Middle Ages, added this All Souls Day, which, of course, a lot of the reformers wanted to jettison. But we nevertheless name ourselves after that, but not because we're all about purgatory here. We're not totally against it, but it's not a big focus of what we're about. Okay, It's because we reinterpret it as grace-centered for the rest of us. The souls, not, we're not all saints, but in some senses, to bring all souls and saints together is the simultaneity of what it means to be a Christian, both sinner and saint at the same time. 
That's that Lutheran flavoring that you might be noticing here. So, all souls, that's why we are what we are. By God's grace and only by His grace, I find that description helpful. So, look at it, enjoy that, realize that living into that mystery is a lot of what we are about. And so, as we move on, what I've done is I've given us a history of all souls Wheaton Catechesis with the high church and evangelical, those two adjectives that we've taken as our own. And I've shown us, you'll see there's a lot, of, lot going on on the high church side, not as much on the evangelical side, but we, we toggle back and forth between the two. How did we get to the point where we're doing that toggling is a question some of you might ask. Well, our catechist emeritus, a man named Alan Jacobs, because he's not the ex-catechist, he's the catechist emeritus. We still see him as a founding mind of our congregation, who wrote these books while he was here. Original Sin, it's wonderful, really, look into it. And the Book of Common Prayer, a biography, some of you may know of his brand new books that have been published as well, which are fantastic. He now teaches at Baylor. And I sat under him when I came here in 2011. It was like, I can't believe this place really exists. They didn't have an option like this. When I was in graduate school, you picked evangelical, you picked hardcore high church. You couldn't have both. And I was amazed as I sat and learned from him. And he bequeathed to us this high church and evangelical designation, the titles that we're going to latch on to. I understand that evangelical makes some of us nervous right now, politically speaking. And I simply want to correct that with a little bit of history. The first term, the first time the word was used in English is in 1531 when William Tyndale exhorted believers to proceed constantly in the evangelical truth. So right at the dawn of Anglicanism, this word is being employed. Why? Because the Greek New Testament had been unveiled thanks to this biblical work. And so he latches on to that. And all of a sudden, this evangelical doctrine breaks through some of the structures of the church at that time and starts to set people free. And people gather around that. And Thomas More, who we celebrate in our litany, that is bizarre. That he, a Catholic martyr, is celebrated in our formal litany that we're doing together this year. But he refers to the evangelical people like William Tyndale and Robert Barnes in that early movement in the 16th century. So that's what I mean by the term. If the political understandings frustrate you, I recommend just going to, if you hear abuses of Catholicism and you hear caricatures of it, read the catechism. If you hear abuses of evangelicalism and ways people and journalists talk about it, read what the National Association of Evangelicals actually said for the health of the nation, an evangelical call to civic responsibility, just published and revised for this fractious time that we're in. I have a link on the handout. So nevertheless, evangelical, we're holding on to that for reasons we'll go into in a moment. And high church, interestingly enough, not Anglo-Catholic, which frustrated me when I got here. Because I was like, hey, this is like the high church church and we're like hardcore and we're, we're Anglo-Catholic. That's basically what we are. And I remember Alan saying to me, I don't know if we want to use that term. We prefer high church instead. And I go, well, what's the difference? Well, in some senses, 
Let me put it this way. It's not an invention that we came up with yesterday or that Alan Jacobs came up with. In 1840, wonderful name, a guy named Henry Christmas was already using the hybrid label evangelical and high church to describe what was going on. And that's before, or in the midst of it at the same time, but in some senses before Anglo-Catholicism really took off, which was a very highly sacramental focused revival movement in the Anglican church. And so this in some senses precedes that. We're not against Anglo-Catholicism. And we take liturgy very seriously here, which is why we call ourselves high church. But if you do your big background reading in Anglicanism, you'll find that high church signifies something perhaps a little bit different. It's important the liturgy is there, but we want to keep that evangelical part at the center. And I think what we've seen since I've been catechist here is a tug of war between the two sides. And that is not schizophrenia, I hope. That is by design. When I first said, when I started, I said, hey, if you find yourself drawn to the evangelical side, open yourself to the high church side. If, you're, if you find, get, just give me the sermon, oh, this liturgy stuff. No, no the, open yourself to the liturgy if that's the way you feel. If, however, you're drawn to the high church side, then open yourself up to the evangelical side, and that's what happened to me. I was annoyed when Father Martin would mention Luther in his sermons. I almost wanted to correct him and say, you know, we're kind of past that crazy guy. You know, didn't he divide the church? But what happened through my life in my time here, primarily through the suffering, not of my own, but of those in this congregation, and through a realization of my own sin in a deeper way, is all of a sudden that truth hit me again the way it did when I was a 15-year-old youth group convert. I can't explain that. And I genuinely hope that I'm not just trying to drag you all along with me. I, I think that that is something that is unique about the charism of this place. And so we're trying to bring both together. Notice when I got here, I didn't say let's do a deep study of Galatians. I said, hey, we're doing Mary, Virgin Mary. And so my first shot at catechesis was Mary for Anglicans. It was a long time ago. And we went into it. And I said, look, we're, we're all about the Virgin Mary here. This is, she's, she's right there. And we have an Anglican take on her. But nevertheless, she's a missing element in Protestantism. And we focused upon that. And then all of a sudden, what did we do? We toggled to the other side. Father Mike, not all of you know him. He's now in Florida, an amazing gifted minister. He said, let's go deep into the book of Galatians. There's the Greek text. And he, he drove us into that. And that's that most Protestant, that most evangelical of books. And so we toggled between the two. So you see what's been happening over the years. Okay, Mary for Anglicans, Milliner, Strachan on Galatians. And then I said, well, we got to turn back in the other direction. So we did all souls, space, and time, which thankfully is not a single series, but an ongoing series because we worship here every Sunday. And so what we did is we created a sort of calendar that we explored for a while, and we connected it to different moments in our building that flesh out the wisdom of the church year. 
that glory that we're residing in right now with our star that only hangs at this time of year. So we just walked through that year and we said, what is our building saying to us? And we are not done with that lesson. We have taken a white box in the suburbs and we have turned it into what I like to call mystagogy, <laughs> which is in the ancient church was liturgical initiation into the mysteries of Christ. That's what has happened here thanks to the artistic gifts in this congregation. So we're not done with this. And it's important. And it's not unevangelical. It's our enhanced kind of evangelicalism, our vitamin supplemented evangelicalism that makes this possible, lives out, fleshes out the gospel. And one of the images we used back then was, remember this, 1900, there was a strange combination of things going on in Wisconsin and all these East Coast elite Episcopalians made fun of it because these Anglicans were hanging out with the Orthodox, right? What do they do? Those are a bunch of immigrants. Don't deal with them. They're not the Brahmin upper class that we Episcopalians are. So they made fun of it, Fond du Lac in Wisconsin, the Fond du Lac Circus. And we said, well, maybe we're the All Souls Circus. We're, we're kind of trying to bring these things strangely together as well in this perhaps wild appeal to a future council that would justify what we're up to. And if that sounds a little outlandish, unrealistic, and crazy, that's how Dante approached church history, appealing to a future council. But that's what we do here. So that was one of the images we used to describe where we are. Do you remember these? Not all of you will because you weren't here, but it was an incredible illustration from Father Martin's travels in Iceland, pilgrimage cairns, that guide us on our path. And Benedict and Augustine and Evagrius were those cairns that helped us stay along the way. So that was the theme, the heart and pilgrimage, for another book that we looked at by Martin Thornton called English Spirituality that was definitely on the high church end of things. In fact, he doesn't like to use the term Anglican because he thinks that's way too recent. He wants to embed himself in the Middle Ages. So we rode with that for a while, and that was an incredible series. And you all unfurled your gifts to make that series come to life as we read that book together. So there we are, the Cairns of Iceland. Remember, Matthew Dahlman, a wonderful priest, he came, was our guest speaker at that time. All right, then we just kept going. We went virtues and vices. Now that is not something Luther was a huge fan of. It's not that he hated it. Please understand, Luther was all for your reading Aristotle, just not in the wrong way, right? But he nevertheless said, if you get on this trail, you're going to find yourself earning brownie points for God. Be careful with the fascination right now that evangelicals have with practices, with virtues and vices. But we did it anyway. We said, we've got to know this stuff. And I think we were right to do so. We've got experts in our congregation who are published internationally in this area. And so we, rode our, we drove ourselves into that Thomistic sense of what it means to have vice and virtue. And that's when we use this analogy to try to make sense of that. Remember Reginald Pohl, who was one of those Catholics that understood Protestantism, but when he had to work for Bloody Mary, well, he had to change his tune. And Catherine Vermigli, the wife of a Protestant minister, Peter Martyr Vermigli, when she died, 
They couldn't get to her, his, her husband, but they said, well, we're going to really rub it in for her. And they threw her bones into a dung heap. That's how they felt about this Reformation emphasis. It was a bitter, bitter time. And yes, the favor was returned on the Protestant side. And so what happened was Queen Elizabeth took that, those relics, those remains, and mixed them with the bones of St. Frideswid, who is an English abbess, the patron of Oxford, and said, we're going to mingle them together so that you cannot extricate this evangelical from this great Catholic saint. And we said, if Queen Elizabeth did it, we're trying it here too. All right. So we said, hey, we're doing virtues and vices. It might not work with pure Lutherans, but you know what? We're doing it anyway. And then we tried it. We have, uh, we've got Wheaton Bible here. We've got St. Mike's here. A lot of people say, like, well, you know what? This also circus doesn't make sense. I'm going here or I'm going here. We're trying to bring this together, both evangelical and high church. And what happened then is we started to get in touch with something most of us never imagined could possibly happen, a renewal movement in the Episcopal Church. Who would have thought of that? Who would have imagined Many of us just said, that, that, it's done. And yet, God has done something. And we are not fully official members of this Mockingbird movement, but we started to listen to some of the things that they were saying. And I started to listen to that, and I said, wow, I think that this Luther thing, maybe I didn't fully understand it. It's at St. George in New York City. That's where a lot of this movement is happening right now. And that is this sense of let's go back to this evangelical emphasis on grace. And it's not coincidental that this was also the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, where all of this new scholarship came forward, stuff that, of course, John Henry Newman could never have read. He didn't even read the fraction of Luther that we have now because it wasn't translated. But there was new light into what this Reformation emphasis is about, and it touched our congregation. And this is the book that we chose, Grace and Practice, and it made some of us nervous. <laughs> and I'm glad it did, because grace always makes people nervous. Does this mean we're about to justify any manner of sin because we're emphasizing grace? That's what they said to Paul. It's right there in the New Testament. He defends himself from that accusation. It should make us nervous. And when our guest speaker this year, who remembers what it was, who it was? Tim Blackman. He made us nervous. And I love the pushback we gave. In fact, I remember Hal Merck had a, a wonderful pushback to one of the things that the chaplain of Wheaton College, Tim Blackman, said. And I said, I said, Tim, it was interesting. We had some pushback. He's like, yeah, I know. I think I pushed too far. I've refined since that pushback because there's a sense we got it. This grace message is threatening. As my professor from of old, George Hunsinger, book entitled Disruptive Grace, it's disruptive. But nevertheless, it's the lifeblood of the gospel. And so we looked at this book by Paul Zoll, and we unpacked that, and that's what led us in this direction. And what we've been trying to do in the Great Litany series is to weave the two together. It is not our invention. It is this brilliant liturgical document that we have inherited as Anglicans. That document, right, that includes both Thomas More and Thomas Cranmer. When we were worshiping in London, at the Tower of London, there's a chapel there. 
Well, I was kind of going to the cry room because I'm with Peter. And I go and I look around and I kid you not, tomb of Thomas More. And I'm like, I'm in the cry room and there it is. They found his remains after the beheading and, they've, and they kept it there to honor that great saint, even though the Anglican church and, you know, there was that break. And there it was. And I was just like, are you, I went to the cry room and there he was. And so he was in some sense worshiping with us, right? And it was, and then we went back and apparently the, the person who led the tour said, the last person I brought here was Barack Obama. So I guess you're not allowed to see it all the time, but we got to take a quick look at that and say, here's a man of principle who died for his convictions as Henry VIII was going in the direction, but Thomas Cranmer was the same way. As these new thrusts of grace are coming in, he said, I'm going to embed this into our liturgy. And we've seen that toggle back and forth in the litany. We are, this is an analogy that fits well with the season perhaps, right? Both of those coming together. We know that this fire can get a little destructive when it's outside of certain structures, don't we? And we know that this hearth can get a little cold when it doesn't have that heat within it. But that's what we're up to. Before I keep going, I better keep going. Um, I'm going to keep going. Okay, all right, all right, all right. So in the litany, let's just rehearse where we've been, okay? We started with St. George. We did Abraham and Sarah. We had, to, we had to choose. We had to be selective. Hannah and Ruth, you will remember. Isaiah, our guest speaker. Simon of Cyrene. We had an emphasis on our building again to keep that mystagogy ethos with us. Thanks to our session. We had the first witnesses. We emphasized Paul. We deliberately gave him three weeks. You know what? Because he's that evangelical thrust and we're not done. We're giving him a fourth in the spring because we're never done with Paul. And then we had Augustine and Gregory, we had Irenaeus, we had Aelred. All of these sessions, weren't they amazing? I thank everyone who poured themselves into these sessions for free to serve this congregation. Julian, thank you to all of you. Teresa of Avila, interestingly enough, not by design, but about 50% women. Why I say not by design, because I didn't orchestrate it that way. That's what you chose to teach on as you came forth and volunteered, which I think is fascinating. And again, as we move forward into 2019, we're going to focus on Cranmer and more. That's what this session is about. For all who praise God in poetry and song, there's something there. Maybe the reason we're so emphasizing aesthetics and beauty in this church is because that might help us to transcend the verbal gridlock that split the church. And so when we choose to focus on Bach, that might not just be because we're so, oh, our brains hurt, we got to have art. No, it's because our brains are so working that we need art and learn from a guy who both made compositions for Catholics and Protestants. <laughs> So that's one of the reasons we're going to focus on those figures. You'll see them on the sheets that are all around the church. All who preach the word of God, we're emphasizing that. This document is on the website under catechesis. Please learn it, enjoy it, love it. All who work to transform the world, all who nurture faith in home and family, the vocations, the honorable vocations of many of us is going to be emphasized the martyrs and peacemakers of our own time, whose names are known to God alone, and for all those in our own lives who
who revealed to us. This is where we're going to end up in 2019. Hopefully bringing the evangelical, which comes in seriously with Wilberforce, with Simeon, with Wesley, this coming semester. Let me for a moment do ever so quickly some backfill because I'm because of some scheduling difficulties, I missed my session where I was going to focus on Augustine of Canterbury. And let me just say this ever so briefly, super fast. It's there so you don't have to have me go into it. I have this strange trifecta that I have put together with the help of Father Martin. What is that strange symbol that you see? Has paganism infiltrated our church? Well, here we go. In the middle, you have the Hinton St. Mary mosaic, which is, by some accounts, the earliest mosaic of Jesus to survive, which is from England from early in the 4th century. That's pretty interesting. And that's before Augustine of Canterbury was ever sent on his mission to Rome. <laughs> I'm sorry, mission from Rome to England. Isn't that interesting? Already Christianity hit England, but then it was down to an ebb, and missionaries had to be sent. And I just love that face. That face that shows that God has cho chosen these wild Anglo-Saxon barbarians to be recipients of the gospel. And you know, I've shared it with you before, I'm sure you're familiar with it. At that mission in 596, Pope Gregory said, who are they? And the person, he saw the slaves, Anglo-slaves in the market. We don't always think of that, but that's true. And he said, who are they? And in Latin, they're Angli, right? And he said, no, they're not. They're angels. They're, angel. they're going to receive the gospel. Where are they from? They're from a place called Ira. And then he plays off the Latin. No, they're going to be taken from wrath, irate, wrath, because of what Christ has done for them. Who's their king? Alia? Oh, no, it's not. Their king is the praise of God. Hallelujah. And what I want to suggest to you is that maybe, you'll see where I'm going in a second, that that understanding is a little bit like the Lutheran doctrine of imputation. <laughs> it's a little bit like calling someone something they're not. And that is the evangelical thrust that was recovered by Tyndale. We'll go more into it in a second. And what's so interesting is when that group of Anglo-Saxons and Britons grew in power, ultimately they made churches, and this I borrowed from Father Martin, with crazy animal symbols, wild, strange, pagan beasts that were thrown into the church, very central. What is this weird religion? Do they worship this strange animal, right? No, that's a, a symbol of the British Empire, the royal coat of arms of the United Kingdom, and we allow it. <laughs> and if we can allow that, then what is happening in our time is maybe we can allow this as well. And we didn't. We took the cultures of the wide Anglicanism and we force them to be European. But if we can pull this off, maybe that this has a place in worship as well. And I'm telling you, there are congregations in North America that do indeed marshal this aesthetic of a different pagan land, right, into the worship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is happening. 
And that is why Anglicanism is a worldwide communion. This quote is really interesting. I encourage you to read it. It's not consistent with the Anglican Empire. I'm sorry, with the British Empire. It expands beyond the borders of the British Empire. That is clear. Do not make the mistake of thinking that it is just where the British imperial sun shone that is the Anglican communion today. We are the third largest denomination in Christendom and we've expanded beyond that. And we've expanded in such a way that I got to talk with Bishop Mark MacDonald, who is the first ever Anglican Church of Canada, first indigenous Anglican bishop. And he told me, there are so many Native Americans or First Nations, as they call them in Canada, coming to Christ through the Anglican Church that we're outgrowing the Pentecostals. <laughs> It's amazing. You don't hear it. Everyone talks about Global South. Great. It's wonderful. But what about the Global North? What about happening up there? So that's what I mean. What I want to do is to take this understanding of taking this nation and imputing something that might not belong to it, giving it grace that it might not naturally have, and that has this powerful effect. That's the thrust. That's the force of the gospel. And I just, that is an evangelical thing to say to suggest that there may have been some evangelical bristlings and, and beauty in this great Pope Gregory, but that's what I'm saying. Think about it. It might be there. And let me tell you, this understanding of imputation, that's the heat of evangelicalism. If, what do I mean by imputation? Abraham was really amazing. And so God said, you're the, you're the one I pick. No. <laughs> Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him. That's that word, imputation. Reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham did not have much to show. This is how God deals with nations and it's how he deals with us. And that is that explosive transaction of grace that makes everyone nervous. Because if I'm telling you you're something you're not, then I'm perhaps going to justify whatever you're going to do. That is the evangelical doctrine in a nutshell. But what I want to suggest to you is give it a try. If you are a professor about to teach your classes for the first time in a while in January, treat them like they're geniuses, even if they're not. <laughs> right? Watch what happens. Because all of a sudden, their intelligence will manifest itself. If your children are innocent, try imputing to them something that does not belong to them and treating them with grace even though it's not deserved. That is what happens in the New Testament with us. And again, it's, it starts to break structures and systems. But that's that, I think it's deep in, in what, who we are as Anglicans. To regard somebody as, oh, where are we, sorry? To regard somebody as a person he or she is not, that's imputation. That's that radical one-way love of grace. What I have there is another analogy from walking through London. This might be helpful to understand where we are, but we're going to stop. We have a question. The only comment is what Luther says. We love what is lovely. God loves what is unlovely. From the Heidelberg Catechism, or from the Heidelberg Disputation, 1518. There it is, that statement. And that, 
It really is terrifying to acknowledge that that might be the case, that we don't actually have in ourselves the righteousness that he requires of us, but it's imparted to us or even imputed to us. So what I've got here is this sort of stroll that we're on at, at All Souls. And these are two churches in the heart of London. And what you'll see here is perhaps the one that's most important for us because you see a picture of it as you walk downstairs every time you come to worship here is All Souls Langham Place. Right there in the middle of it all, and another evangelical church that shares our name, we might call All Souls Langham Place our elder sibling. And John Stott, died in 2011, was the minister there. And by rooting evangelicalism within a great tradition of biblical interpretation and theological exegesis, Packer believed that its strengths could be safeguarded and its weaknesses minimized. That's what's been happening at Wheaton for the last two decades. And we are a part of that. So it's something that already happened across the pond. But what's interesting is if you pop your eyes into All Souls lying in place, it doesn't look much like us. Screens everywhere, kind of the, the original building is sort of stripped so that you can have this, the praise and worship. And it's like there's a place for that. But that's why we find ourselves between All Souls lying in place and All Saints Margaret Street. When we were there, we got to worship here. And this is a classic high church congregation. And I think it's fair to say we felt a little more as All Souls people in our visit there um, at home at, at All Saints Margaret Street. And we were very welcomed there. It is a stunning building in so many ways. And the way that when that incense goes up and that, that incense, which I think symbolizes our sin and our confession, and then the grace of Christ is made real and visible through our confession. And that's what goes on. There's Father Martin looking at it all in the midst of it as that light beams down on him. And so we're, 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 we're not pure high church. We're not pure evangelical. We're sort of right there in the middle. And if you look on your map, right there in the middle is the burger and lobster at Oxford Circus. <laughs> so. I think that's a pretty high compliment. I've never eaten there, but it looks really good. So maybe, maybe one day we'll go. And so what, what culminates this handout is a lot of us, you know, th these take decades to get your mind around these differences between Catholicism and Protestantism, which is complicated further by the fact that so much has happened recently to bring these two communions together. And some of our lives have been sort of hitched on that divide as we agonize and we wonder over that. And honest intellectual, serious intellectual work has to be done to make sense of those divisions. And so what I have done is I've offered you a chart that has helped me. It remains to be seen whether or not it helps you. And you might say, well, where'd you go, Milliner, right? If, if you wanted it to sound Lutheran, you could have, could have gone to a pure Lutheran source, right? If you wanted it to have sound Catholic, you could have gone in that direction. Who's your source? Well, I found somebody neutral. I found Daphne Hampson that a lot of book, a lot of people had recommended to me called Christian Contradictions, 
And she is not a Christian herself. But she did an incredible job of laying out the structures of Lutheran and Catholic thought to help us understand what still divides us. And I supplemented it with this book by C. Fitzsimmons Allison, The Rise of Moralism. Might be interest to some of you. He argues that Anglicanism has not been faithful to the Lutheran Cranmerian understanding. Um, they are, yeah. This, this one is, I think I threw that one in the last minute, but um, Fitzsimmons, Allison, but this one is there. It's all there. This is so you wouldn't have to worry about writing anything down. So, interesting, all right? So what basically she does, and this, I know it seems like a lot, but I think this is very digestible. She gives us these wonderful charts. She apologizes for them. She doesn't have to. She's like, I know this is complicated, but I've studied this for a long time. This is the Catholic understanding of justification. <laughs> And so what we've got, you're on the path to God, which is symbolized here, and you have infused grace toward your sin, and you accumulate merit along the way. As you can see from the chart, there are Bible passages that justify this understanding of justification. Even Paul talks about reward. What do we do with that? That makes Lutherans nervous. But nevertheless... What's really interesting, and if you really want to get to the heart of it, if you're hardcore into philosophy, to use your formal cause in Aristotelian logic, which is what makes a thing what it is, the formal cause of your justification in Catholicism is not Jesus' righteousness, but yours. Interesting. Because God declares something what it is. And you are, no, that's, I see it, it's in you. Very interesting. Now that's because of the tight, packed logic of Aristotle. But nevertheless, that's what they say. And the Lutherans say the exact opposite. What justifies us is not our righteousness, but Christ's. And Daphne Hampson comes up with a great analogy. Justification for the Catholics, it's a book purchased for you. You don't buy it on your own. It's given to you free. And it's yours. But in Lutheranism, you borrow it from the library. It belongs to Jesus. It's still in his name. And he lets you borrow it. Very interesting. You might now, hold on, you might start be saying, is this the subtleties? Why? These just the, the, the agonized details. Folks, if you don't understand this, you won't understand our worship. Do you see confessionals in here? No. Because if we were in this system, there'd be a confessional where you go to, you confess to the priest, and then you're made right, and you acknowledge God not as a sinner, but in a state of grace when you come to receive the Eucharist. We don't do it that way. There is a more and more, and Dante is the great architect, the great uh, aesthetic architect of this system. There's an accumulation on the way. But in this understanding... The Lutheran understanding, which, like it or not, has been embedded into Anglican liturgy, so you're stuck with it. <laughs> it's not just for intellectuals. It's the way we worship. It's what just happened when Father Arcadi preached those words of comfort to us and what is about to to some of you. It is a both-and, a paradox. Here is the human trying to justify him or self before God, him or herself before God, and it's a futile act. Does this sound familiar? A group of people that get together and proclaim the 10 things you're supposed to do? 
And then instead of saying, yes, we did it, you say, Lord, have mercy. That's what happens every Sunday here. The proclamation of the law. And we don't say, score. <laughs> don't go out the door. We say, uh-oh. And we're driven to this. To the mysterious abiding in Christ. There's the human mysteriously placed in Christ. It is no longer I who live. You've died to yourself. And it is Christ who mysteriously works through you. And is there still good works? Of course. But they're not to accrue merit. Very interesting. Are we, and so the great aesthetic architect, we need someone as good as Bunyan, right? I'm as good as Dante, and we've got Bunyan. Bunyan is the one. You don't accumulate on the way in the Pilgrim's Progress. You fall again and again and again. (laughs) That's the great Puritan aesthetic expression of this understanding. And ask yourself, which one is more accurate as to where you are? Okay, I've got a great quote there from C.S. Lewis. Speaking with a Catholic convert, Dom B. Griffiths, his student. And he's like, look, this whole endless Pauline understanding of the doctrine of the law that can't be kept, what does Lewis say? I don't think we in the Church of England have retained that. And I don't want to see it swollen and inflamed as it was in the original Protestants. But it's got to be in there. This from Lewis who's saying, I sympathize with that earlier, that justification understanding, but we have something different here. And our all souls fusion, if I can put it this way, is we're definitely in this Lutheran system because it's in our liturgy and we didn't write that liturgy. It was written for us. And we're just going to have to put a little line in there anyway. Right? That inclined line in the Catholic side. I, this is honestly my responding to what I've heard you respond to to our catechesis sessions. I'm like, our congregation wants to have that in there, but I've made it sort of a dotted line because we keep failing in our efforts. We keep falling. We keep messing up. (laughs) And so, nevertheless, this is our attempt to bring these things together. Maybe one day in Vatican III or better, Jerusalem II, right? (laughs) That's what our Christian brothers and sisters in India want. They're like, why do you have another one in Rome? How about you come closer to us? Okay? A universal church council could fix these things. Correct me if I'm wrong. There's no justification treaties in, in the Second Vatican Council. That this thing wasn't hammered out. We want to get to a point of unity. And one thing I'm just going to briefly say is I certainly don't believe, as Cranmer in some of his moments, as Luther did, that people who believe this are under a system of antichrist. I certainly don't believe that. The Catholics have given us the gift of calling us separated brothers and sisters, thank goodness. And I, don't say, I would never say this about them. And you might say, well, then why don't you jump on board? Here's the tricky thing. Why does this understanding keep showing up in this system? Why do all the greatest Catholic saints sound like Lutherans? (laughs) Why does John of the Cross say, if you're going to get really serious, you got to do it by faith alone, right there in the ascent of Mount Carmel? Why does Bernard of Clavaux say things that would have gotten kicked out of the Council of Trent? And if that sounds harsh, the people who represented the Protestant position at the Council of Trent got slugged in the face, and they slugged back. 
that was not a council that represented the universal church. And so I think as Anglicans, we can say this church of ours is divided. We are not the whole thing, but we are emphasizing this side of grace. And our building is what does it best. And so that's the note that I want to conclude on. And I, I share this with the, the students for confirmation. But I really, I think, I've tried it a lot. I think it works. These lights symbolize the Ten Commandments. The reason I have heart, soul, mind, and strength, you'll notice those first four commandments beautifully correspond to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay, like the mind is the gateway to the, you get the, it, it, it makes sense. Okay, and then we go here. We've got five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. We've got love your neighbor and love yourself. When you come into this building, the light is cranked up and your heart is exposed unto whom no secrets are hidden. And we're in trouble. This building really comes to life on the Easter Vigil. Why? Because it's dark in here. And this light has done as much, because it's five in the morning, and these lights have done as much as they can but they can't do too much more in the darkness. And then what happens in this building on Easter morning? A different source of power, the sun. It beams in here. You don't notice it, do you? But we don't really need these lights because the resurrected light of Christ is coming inside. And these windows symbolize the eight Beatitudes, which symbolize a heart broken that cannot fulfill the requirement of the law. Do we still need the 10 lights? No, not really. We could get rid of them, but we keep them anyway. And that's that dotted line. We still hold on to what in the Reformation controversies they call maybe the third use of the law. Still got to think about the Ten Commandments, but they've, they're no longer the way by which we make ourselves right before God. I have a little more, but I'm going to stop right there. <laughs> you have questions. Yes. Actions of merit, actions that reflect God's spirit. So while it's not obtaining salvation, right. it does have that stair step. Of oh, I, that's a great pushback, Monica. I wouldn't want to go saint for saint with Catholicism. Anglicanism versus Catholicism, we'd lose. We'd lose quickly, right? But it's so interesting that in the catechism, my favorite moment, I've, you've probably heard me say this before, Therese of Lisieux, a doctor of the church, says something that is nearly anathematized by the Council of Trent, that is nearly called cursed. What is that thing that she says? She says, Lord, you know, I get this merit thing, but I just want to love you for love alone, not for what I get from it. The Council of Trent says that if you say it's a sin to believe that way, um, if, 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 I, mean, they, they, they don't, I mean, they don't anathematize her, but they come close to saying, be careful of thinking that way. But then the catechism lifts that up and says, there's grace here too. 
And I think that this would be reconcilable, but the church was so at each other's throats at that time that they have made decisions that still have to be worked through. And so we find ourselves on this side. You might ask yourself, you know, what lies ahead? Where are we going? Are we just going to keep this schizophrenic tug-of-war thing going for the next, you know, 10 years? I think if I was going to pick something, um, it would be this. The mystery of being in Christ. That's what the mystics plumb. That's what Ignatius of Loyola plumbs. He understands grace. What if we went in this direction as, as, a, as a hope of unifying, leading towards some kind of unity? And maybe most exciting of all, I love this chart. Here you are, you're growing in Christ, right? And you're, you know, if it's not working well, you start to perform or you start to pretend, right? Because you're trying to get increase in holiness, but look, the cross is staying the same. But this is the way it's supposed to work. You just go deeper and deeper into the mystery of the cross, as Luther says it in the chart. Progress is just beginning again and again and again. And there it is, sort of, right? <laughs> We can kind of see that there, all right? You never graduate from the cross. And, it, and, that, and I know that's true in Catholicism too. You never graduate from the cross. The crucifix is there in every Catholic church. But we have a special emphasis on this here, a special emphasis on it. I think we've got another maybe minute for questions. I don't see a, a, a nervous bell ringer. One minute, okay. Anybody, I know that was a lot, folks. Any other pushback? Dr. Long. Yeah. But, like, why not all just go to St. John's? You know what I mean? Like, they, yeah. So what I think is, this is really interesting stuff. We ought to be in conversation yeah. with them. I think it's a great right church. A it's a great church. And what, what's interesting, Jason, is that um, a pure Lutheran perspective would be terrified of this line. It's really interesting. Um, they would say, whoa, whoa. And, and, uh, but, but you're right. There's a real remarkably similar formula. And I think we've leaned toward them. And you might say, you know, it's interesting. You might say, well, is this what kind of Alan Jacobs was here? Really smart guy. And all of a sudden, what's happened to the church when he's gone? He's worshiping at a church connected to Mockingbird Ministries in, in Waco. He has been in a church that's deeply recovered this Lutheran understanding as well. It's very interesting. But yes, there's a big kinship there, Jason. I'm going to um, lecture at their retreat next year. I'm really excited because I, I, there's this, it's a wonderful, if you've, never, if you've not ever worshipped there, it's a wonderful place. But they have close communion. That's another difference. Another, I can't receive there, right? So it's another difference. Um, you'd have to literally switch um, to, so it's one of the difficulties. Great point. Um, I think we are, unless there's one last hand, um, so enjoy this handout if it helps you, and I hope that it can be of assistance um, to help those heroic teachers who are to come. Thank you, everybody.